Good morning, church. If you all be seated. Hi, I'm Trent Marks. I'm a member of the Mark Rohr Community Group, and I'm married to Tana uh, Marks. And I'm going to be reading the uh, scripture today, uh, starting in Mark chapter 15, verse 42. And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who is also himself looking to the kingdom of God, took the courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centron, he asked him whether, the, the, whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centron that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought the linen, and, linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were who, where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that he, may, so he might go and anointed him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went back to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw the young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And they said to him, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen, and he is not here. See the place where they had laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going to be before you to Galilee, and you will see him as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they had said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now I'm a sinner, and I have been saved by Jesus Christ, by grace alone, by faith alone. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Thanks, Trent. The only reason this place looks so nice is because Trent does such a great job of setting up the projector for us. He is our resident projector and engineer, I guess, if you will. Uh, we were having a discussion before this morning started on how to pronounce, is it Joses? We are white guys from West Texas, and so I was saying maybe it's Jose's. Uh, but uh, we're glad you're here this morning. My name is Matt, um, and I am not our lead pastor. Uh, Tanner House is actually on a much-needed vacation with his wife up in Oregon, I believe. So he'll be back next week. But if this is your first time uh, with us this morning, I'm glad you're here. We've got some Connect cards underneath. If you want to fill one of those out, uh, we'd love to get in contact with you, see if there's anything we can do, pray for you, anything like that. Um, just let us know. Uh, we are so glad that you're here. We use the ESV Bible, so if you're wanting to follow along, uh, raise your hand if you need one, and we can have Mark get one to you. Um, so, we've been going through the book of Mark for quite some time now. Basically, since uh, the birth of this church about 18 months ago, we've been, we've, been, we've been going through and walking, and it's been awesome. And here we are, we've got two weeks left out of this journey. And 
uh, I get the honor of being able to preach on the resurrection. So it's Easter Sunday all over again. It's Easter in July. And I love uh, the resurrection. Anytime we sing songs about, that have verses about an empty grave or about death having no hold on me, you'll usually probably hear me clapping in the back because I'm usually back where Chad is doing sound. I just love that fact that we get this newness. And, and I'm keenly aware of the importance of the text that we're covering today. I'm trying to hold this tension between the joy, but also the fear and the weight of the subject matter. As Tanner has made clear throughout the, his sermon last week, the crucifixion and the resurrection are these two linchpins, these two foundational events upon which our entire faith is based. Okay? Out of all of history, be it the invention of the wheel, uh, the printing press, the declaration and the war for independence, Metallica's Black Album, all of this pales in comparison to the two events that took place that we've been covering, right? These are the pinnacle of God's plan from the beginning to save man and bring glory to himself. The two events are forever linked and you cannot have one without the other. In a way, it's like watching Rocky one without watching Rocky two. Okay, the iconic Yo Adrian, I did it is only so beautiful because of what we see in the first movie, the heartbreak that we go through, right? So the pain and sorrow of the cross is really made beautiful in the emptiness of that grave. The work on the cross was the sacrifice for our sin. Your sin, my sin, was dealt a death blow on the cross. But then it was Christ taking upon himself the full wrath of a holy God. That in itself is so scandalous, right? That this perfect and holy God whose justice must be satisfied, took upon himself the punishment that we deserved while pouring out mercy that we did not deserve. But it doesn't just end there. That in and of itself would be an amazing feat, right? But it doesn't end there. Christ wasn't finished on the cross. The glorious and triumphal act took place a few days later. The cross was an end to our sin, but the empty tomb is the beginning of newness of life and the defeat of death itself. There's so much to unpack within this small section of text. We could pull an entire series from it. But my hope today is to offer kind of a historical look and make a logical case for the resurrection while also highlighting the immense beauty of the climax that all of Scripture was pointing to. The Lord gave us brains to think, but he also gave us these hearts to feel. And I hope that today, as we walk through this text, with his help, that maybe I'll be able to stir both. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the hearts that are gathered here today. We thank you for those that volunteer their time as an act of worship to come and get us set up, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and mercy, God, that we don't deserve. Thank you that you are so loving and gracious and kind, that you would pour yourself out, that you would take on sin and death on our behalf, that you defeated foes that we could not defeat so that we might bring you glory, Lord. 
I pray that you would just be honored here today as we look at your word. I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that I would be able to help make sense of the scripture we're looking at and that your spirit would be moving, Lord. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So let's recap. Jesus is dead. The pain and the agony and the humiliation of the cross is no longer affecting Jesus physically. It is no longer impacting Jesus the Nazarene. Though his body was still on the cross, the work that the Father had set before him was finished. Finished in a sense that the sacrificial system that we'd seen from ages past, from the days of Moses, was finally fulfilled. He screams out in the book of John, he screams out, it is finished. That system is done. Many years before the cross, Abraham told his son Isaac that Yahweh, the Lord, would provide a sacrifice for them. And now that perfect and spotless lamb, that perfect sacrifice had finally been made. When we see in Mark 15, 42, it says, When evening had come, and since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who also was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, normally, a criminal that was crucified was left hanging, and the body would be ravaged. It would be eaten by birds and other wild animals. That's pretty pleasant. Uh, whatever was left of the corpse was thrown into this valley, okay? It was not an honorable death. It was a criminal's death, okay? But Jesus' body was spared that because the Jewish law forbade that anyone be left hanging on a tree over, overnight, okay? Left hanging on a cross overnight. And so uh, he didn't have to suffer through that fate. Now, not only was it getting close to sundown, but this was also the day before the Sabbath. The Sabbath was coming, the evening of the Sabbath, when they could do no work, right? And so... Not only was it leading to the Sabbath, but it was also the Sabbath leading to Passover. You can almost say this was the Sabbath. Okay, this was like the high holiest uh, season for the for the Jewish nation, right? And so they had to do something with this body. But who would bury him? All of his friends had abandoned him. Even John, who by our accounts, was at the crucifixion, had probably left and taken Mary home, right, because it was getting evening, okay? Who was going to take care of this? We get our answer in this rich man named Joseph. So this Joseph was part of the supreme court for the Jewish nation, right? Uh, We call it the Sanhedrin. Uh, This is the same court (laughs) that had illegally and wrongfully sentenced Jesus to die, Now, the word tells us that he was looking forward to the coming kingdom and that he did not approve of, and according to other gospels, was most likely not there at this sham trial, right? Because we're told that everyone in attendance at this trial voted to sentence this man to death. Being that he didn't approve of it, we can assume he probably just bowed out altogether and wanted nothing to do with it. He was eagerly awaiting the coming kingdom, and John tells us that he was secretly a disciple of Jesus for fear of repercussions from his peers, from his status, right? But despite this fear, God, in his grace, changes this man, and he steps up. The fear of being known was gone upon Christ crucified. 
He approaches Pilate, which in and of itself was an act of bravery, to not only defy his fellow Sanhedrin, but now, into <laughs> the work day, right? And now I'm going to go and I'm going to approach this pagan, harsh Roman governor that everyone hates. And I'm going to ask for this body of the man he just killed. God was working in this man. He was essentially risking his life and livelihood for the man he knew to be the Messiah. Yet we can also assume that he had an incomplete picture. This coming king was dead. The one that we were looking forward to is dead. Now what? Picking back up in 43 through 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So the Gospels all have slight differences between them, okay? It's kind of like when you see a car crash. You see this accident happen, and all the witnesses are providing different points of view, different angles, different perspectives. Each witness has specific things that they maybe focus in on that it maybe take prominence for them. They all are telling the same story, but they kind of maybe have slight variations. Some have details that others may lack. For example, the Gospel of John provides additional details about the crucifixion. Okay, so I'm going to rely on John quite a bit today. Um, we're told that Pilate was surprised by the speed of which Jesus died because sometimes it can take days for someone to finally perish on a cross. But we know that, in fact, he did die because John tells us that the soldiers that were present went around and they were breaking the knees of the other guys that were hanging with him. They would break the knees because then you wouldn't be able to bear weight through your legs and it would actually speed up this process of suffocation, okay? They got to Jesus and he was already dead. It wasn't necessary. This actually even fulfills what we see in Psalm 3420 where it tells us that his bones would not be broken. It was already done. Not only did they not break his knees because he was already dead, but we're told that a soldier took a spear and thrust it into his side. They wanted to make double sure. This man, Jesus, wasn't just unconscious. He wasn't just in shock from the pain of the scourging. He was dead. The Romans didn't play around. They knew how to kill a man. I think Tanner said last week they had killing and torture down to a science, down to an art. They knew what they were doing. He was dead. So after getting the confirmation, Pilate, Pilate grants Joseph the body of Jesus. Picking up in 46, And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So now we have at the very least an officer, Pilate, Joseph, and according to the Gospel of John, we have Nicodemus there to confirm that, in fact, Jesus has died. Joseph and Nicodemus, another leader of the Sanhedrin, who was also kind of a secret disciple of Jesus, they take the body and they wrap it in these linen bandages. I can't read this and not think back to the birth of Christ when he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was laid in a manger. See, at that time, Mangers, we tend to think of like these wooden structures that 
you know, are then filled with hay, but usually a manger was actually like a water trough and it was carved out of stone. And so here we have again this Messiah wrapped in bandages, wrapped in linen cloth, and he was laid into a carving of stone. It's this really awesome bookend to the earthly life of Jesus, and it just, it just highlights how awesome of a storyteller our God is. Now, Joseph was apparently well off, and this was a private tomb on his own property. And thanks to Isaiah 53, 9, we see yet another prophecy fulfilled. It says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Some versions will say, And he was laid in a rich man's grave. Now, Jesus did talk about the trappings of wealth, privilege, and how they can become idols in our lives. Yet, even in this scene, we see a wealthy man using his resources to bless the Lord. This was an act of worship. Even though he was sure that this king that he was expecting is dead, he still uses what he has to honor and worship him, to bless him. The stone is rolled in front of the tomb as Mary Magdalene and Jesus' own mother watch. Their hope, their Messiah, their friend and son, the light of the entire world was placed into a dark cave and sealed with stone. Now, Jesus was a controversial, controversial figure even at this point, right? There had to be numerous witnesses there that saw where he was laid. One could also assume that the religious leaders of the day, the other Sanhedrin, would want to be there too to make sure to see with their own eyes and confirm that this troublemaker was finally done for. He was out of their hair. He was put in this cave, sealed up, and now we can get back to status quo. The book of Matthew tells us that they were even so convinced and they wanted to make so sure of it, they asked Pilate, hey, can you station some guards in front of this tomb to make sure that no one comes in? or out. So put yourself in their shoes. The fear, the uncertainty, the confusion and grief, the feeling of being lost. Everything for the past several years, right? Everything that you've been hoping for, this man that you had bet on, this Messiah that you thought was for sure was gone. What do you even do now? Well, they did what anyone would normally do in this time after someone died. They went to prepare the body and anoint it for eternal rest. Picking up in 16, it says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spice, uh, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. The Sabbath was over now. Okay, so it would be Saturday evening, and the shops and marketplaces, the bazaar, would be back up and running. So Mary Magdalene and others went to the shops, and they bought these spices and supplies to anoint Jesus' body. So remember, Joseph had wrapped him up in linen, but because it was nearing the Sabbath, sundown was coming, the normal full preparation wasn't able to, to be completed, so the anointing would have to wait. The tradition was to cover 
the body and these spices and these fragrant oils. They didn't practice embalming, say, like the Egyptians did, right? But it was just a way of showing honor and love and devotion. It was also kind of a practical way, too, because, uh, unfortunately, bodies, as they start to decompose, they smell, right? And so this was a sweet thing that they were trying to do for their friend. They wake up on, early on Sunday, the first day of the week, and they start heading to the tomb. They were most likely in a rush because, at this point, they were probably fearing it had been several days, right? And they were fearing some decomposition at this time. It, it makes me think of Lazarus, right? So his sisters tell Jesus, oh, don't go in there. He's been in there for several days now. The smell's not going to be pleasant. They're in a rush because they don't want that to happen. Now, Jesus had told them often of how the Messiah would, had to die and would rise three days later. And we could criticize their lack of faith. We have hindsight 2020, right? But let's look at the love and devotion they showed their friend. I mean, where were the other disciples? They were nowhere to be seen. They were in hiding. Whereas these grieving women were on their way to perform one last act of love for their beloved Jesus. In verse 3, it says, They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. On the way, these poor women were trying to figure out how we're going to roll back this huge stone so that they could anoint their friend. This would be no easy feat, Right? Maybe they could use some logs and leverage, you know, like physics. I don't know. Maybe they'd been participating in some ancient CrossFit regimen and they were about them gains. Maybe they just had faith that God was going to do something for them, that he would provide a way. To their amazement, this stone, this massive stone, had been rolled away. Now, here again, we can get some other info from these concurrent Gospels. Matthew tells us that there had been an earthquake and that an angel had rolled the stone away, causing these guards to faint as if dead. Okay. Man, imagine you're a low-level guard assigned to watch the tomb of some dead guy. You don't want to be there. Hopefully, you're getting overtime pay. You're just trying to do your job, hoping for the next shift to arrive. Maybe you're about to clock out, and then this happens. This should be the easy job. Now, some accounts state that the angel was sitting on the stone when they arrived. Some state that, it was sit, that the angel was sitting inside the cave. But Luke and John actually tell us that there were two angels. The neat part about this is that two witnesses were needed to validate a claim. If we look in Deuteronomy, it had to be two witnesses to verify truth for a claim. But why did the angels have to move the stone? They weren't freeing Jesus. I always thought that for the longest time, that the angels had to come and they had to get that stone out of the way so that Jesus could walk out, right? But no, if you look in John 20, Jesus was able to show up in a room full of locked doors. He was able to show up in a room full of people with these locked doors. No, he didn't need them to roll the stone away. The stone was rolled away for the benefit of the women. 
for them to be able to see with their own eyes, for them to see the garments, for them to see the rolled up cloth, to see the empty space where their friend's body was laid but is no more. They're shocked, and they're rightfully so. This massive boulder was moved, guards are knocked out, empty tomb, and this warrior of light sitting in the corner. Anytime we've seen angels appear in Scripture, they always have to tell folks, calm down, don't be afraid. These are fearsome beings of light. They're not chubby little babies that we see pictures of, right? It's like lightning incarnate, and they get to stand in the very presence of Yahweh. They are rightly to be feared. And does this angel rebuke them? Does he chastise them for their lack of faith? Don't you guys remember what Jesus said? Remember, he said, no one takes my life. I lay it down willingly so that I can take it back up again. Weren't you guys paying attention? (laughs) The angel, again, brings good tidings of great joy. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. This messenger preaches the gospel. One commentator says that this one verse is the first time the gospel is preached, and it sums up both sides of the gospel. We have both verbs. We have the crucifixion, and we have the resurrection. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, the guy you knew, the one who humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. He was crucified, but he's not here. He is risen. He was crucified, but now he is risen. Like I said earlier, you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have the cross without the resurrection and still have Christianity. The events are forever linked. The resurrection shows that Jesus is the one who says, who says he is. I'm going to say that again because I kind of messed that up. The resurrection tells us that Jesus is who he says he is. The resurrection is an undeniable seal of approval from the Father on his Son and his work that was completed on the cross. This Christ is fully man and fully God. <laughs> this statement is beckoning them to reconcile the Jesus they knew and the Jesus that they now need to know. This isn't just their friend and their son, but this is the very God who said that they would save them in Genesis 3. Immediately upon receiving this gospel, they are now commissioned. Get to work and spread this message. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The angel says, stop what you're doing. I know you came to anoint this dead body, but that's not necessary anymore. You have a new job. Your new job is to go and tell. And it's so sweet that this first assignment is to bring this news of life, this resurrection, this forgiveness to the very people who betrayed and abandoned him. His friends that left him in his time of need. 
highlighting Peter. Peter, the one who bravely stated that he would never abandon his friend, even upon threat of death. Peter, who invoked a curse to deny that he even knew this guy. That's you too. That's me too. We betrayed Christ. We betrayed our Lord. We betrayed the God that made us. And yet, what do we see here? Not chastisement. Restoration. It's this beautiful moment of grace and forgiveness. And they run in fear and in awe. It says that they say nothing to anyone on the way. But can you imagine what they have just seen and heard? The humanity on display here is really kind of what stands out to me, right? It highlights our fragile state, our weaknesses, in light of his glory. It also helps to firmly cement the fact that this gospel of Mark which is one of the oldest and most reliable manuscripts we have, is not written to sway people, but simply state what happened. You see, women weren't held in high esteem at this time. They were less than males in terms of their status and their standing in the community, yet Christianity pushes these women to the forefront of this message. They are the first to know of the risen Christ, and they're charged with the importance of spreading this message to the disciples. Again, like the shepherds in the fields on that Christmas morning, we see God choosing to reveal his glory to the lonely. If one was writing for posterity and for influence at this time, you would not include a lot of the warts and failures we see, right? You wouldn't see the betrayals. You wouldn't see the weaknesses. You wouldn't see the impulsiveness. You wouldn't see women maybe being the first to hear this, right? As someone who loves history, I'm a, I'm a big fan of history, by the way. I think Tanner's once stated, like, once you hit your mid-30s, you basically have two options. You have to get into smoking meat or history. <laughs> I chose history, okay? One of my favorites is a guy named David McCullough. But what I like about history, what, what stands out is that you have to have the warts. You have to have both sides. You have to have the ugliness, right? If that's not the case, then I don't trust the history you're writing. We should approach Mark in the same way. The gospel of Mark culminates with these women taking the gospel to men. I probably would have written so that maybe some well-known guy in the community, maybe even some wealthy prince from, you know, uh, some other nation, that way you read kind of hard to necessarily verify, you just have to go with it, right? Someone that had some pool in the community Maybe I'd have them be the first to hear it and take this message and spread it, right? But that's not what happened here because, or that's not what we get because that's not what happened. So what do we do with this? These women are running. The grave is empty. He is risen. He is not here. He is risen. What do we do? Exactly. First Corinthians 15 gives us a really in-depth and logical case to the validity of the cross and the resurrection. It's a study in apologetics. Apologetics is just a fancy word that means being able to logically and rationally explain our faith. 
So Paul tells us that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then neither have you. That means that you are still dead in your sins and your faith is worthless. That means you are still dead. He even goes on to say, if this is all a sham, if this is a lie, then why would I continue risking, why would we continue risking our lives daily for this? Think about the early church. These guys were there. They would have seen Christ risen. Scripture tells us that he appeared to many after he rose. Most of the early church fathers, these early leaders, died gruesome and unjust deaths. If he had not been raised, if they knew it was a sham, why on earth would they continue to persist in this message of salvation through Christ alone? They certainly didn't have an easy life for themselves, full of money and power and prestige and sex. You don't suffer that kind of life unless you have a greater joy set before you. But if he has indeed been raised, if it is true, then oh, the glory that awaited these guys, the glory that they knew was theirs to share in. If he has been raised, then Christ is the first of those who will be raised. He is the first fruits to this newness of life. All authority is his. All authority. And even death cannot stand against him. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, and this may upset some of you here, but as I was, I was needing to prepare for this sermon, I was actually inspired by Harry Potter. Now, my in-laws aren't here, so I can get away with saying this. Um, my brother-in-law's here, and they, they took his Harry Potter book when he was a young and I know that there is some polarizing thought and conviction about this series among those in the church, and I'm not saying you should or should not read it, Okay. That's based upon the Holy Spirit and your convictions, right? But just follow me for a minute, okay? The reason I was inspired by Harry Potter was because of the inscription on his parents' gravestone. It was 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the verse that we just read. What struck me was a thought that even as the symbol of the end, a gravestone, a tomb, that even still, death does not have the final word. It's a defiant shout in the face of our old enemy. You get no claim on us. When you read in Revelation, Christ defeats Satan, okay, and he hurls him into this fiery pit. And only then does he deal with death. Then death is hurled in. Therefore, and thereby ending our age-old foes that have plagued us from the beginning. Sin and then death. 
The cross dealt with our sin, and Christ walking out of the grave seals the victory over death. Now, if you were in Christ, even though we have these failing bodies and we might face death, we know that according to 1 Corinthians 15, 43, that our bodies will be raised in glory. These earthly weak bodies of flesh have been dying since we came into this world. We are racked by sickness and sin and suffering. This is the reward we got for choosing to defy a living God so that we could be our own little gods. Yet God, in his abounding mercy and goodness, has promised us new bodies that will be free from sickness, free from strife, free from the sin that has plagued us from the start. Jesus rising is the assurance that one day we get to rise as well. Now, sometimes when we're reading scripture, we have to look at things both near and far, okay? My wife one day said, it's like bifocals. As I'm getting older, that hits home, okay? Because we have these near promises, but we also have these things that we're still looking forward to. We are already made new by Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection, yet we still struggle day to day. In fact, this week as I prepared for this sermon on the importance of the resurrection, the resurrection was often far from my mind. I wanted to immerse myself in history podcasts, gun videos, Thomas Sewell documentaries, anything but Christ risen, because I'm a sinner. I love the Lord. I want to honor him. I want to glorify him. But I still have this daily struggle. I'm pushing towards that with his help and with his Holy Spirit. But how many of you even on the way here to church this morning (laughs) were yelling at your kids, flipping someone off in traffic? We still deal with sin. It's okay. This is a safe place. I don't do that kind of stuff. I just sin differently. But we have this far promise as well. I look forward to the day when I can love my wife without all the baggage and scars and sin that I carry. I look forward to getting to see my mom again. I look forward to worshiping the creator that made my soul in a perfect harmony in the way that I was designed for. That's that far promise. Our future is set now, but we also are not there yet. What is it called? Tanner likes to say it's the already but not yet or something like that. This hope is there for you as well. The hope and assurance of being made new by the work of the God who knew you before you were born. This life is hard. Turn on the news, right? Inflation, war, COVID. There's more COVID rounds than there are Fast and Furious movies. (laughs) Food shortages. It's full of loss and death and evil and sorrow. But we serve a God who cared so much about our broken state that he took it upon himself to defeat the enemies that we could not defeat so that we could live life anew with him, with all glory to his name.
If you have not turned to Christ for your salvation, if you haven't accepted this free gift of mercy, that offer still stands for you. It's still there. If the Holy Spirit is calling you and working in your heart, then confess your sins and turn to the God that defeated sin and death on your behalf. Let him bring to you to newness of life and secure this hope that death is not the end for you. This can't be all there is. If that's the case, then we are most pitied indeed. If you're a Christian, I would ask that you would go before the Lord and ask for his spirit to act on us so that we might live like the empty grave actually matters. We have a hope that this world desperately needs. Penn Jillette, um, he's the, the talking one out of the duo, but he's the famous, I, almost, I keep saying almost musician. He, he might play music, I don't know, but he's the famous magician from Penn and Teller. Uh, he's the one with the dark hair that talks usually, right? Uh, he's also a known atheist. But he once said, and I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but if you have such good news as forgiveness of sin and eternal life, how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them? I'm going to say that again because this is coming from an atheist, an avowed atheist. If you have such good news as forgiveness of sin and eternal life, then how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them? This world needs to know that their sin and the death in this world is not all there is. Let's pray.